Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. I'm super excited to have with me on the Law Down Under podcast, Emma Priest, who is one of New Zealand's most experienced criminal defence barristers and lawyers. Uh, Emma is an experienced criminal defence barrister. She's been working at Blackstone Chambers. Emma graduated from the University of Auckland with a BA in psychology and an LLB in 1999. After finishing uh, those two undergraduate degrees, she went on and obtained and earned her master's degree with first class honours in 2001 with a focus on criminal law. Emma worked in general practice for a year and a half before joining Meredith Connell, the Crown Solicitor's Office in Auckland. Emma was there for 11 years, becoming an associate and a senior Crown Prosecutor. In 2013, Emma joined the Public Defence Service, uh, known as the PDS, uh, where she exclusively represented legally aided clients. In 2016, Emma joined the Independent Criminal Bar and re-established Blackstone Chambers uh, in Auckland. Emma was appointed to the Auckland District Law Society's Criminal Law Committee and is a co-convenor of the ADLS Parole Committee. She's a representative of the New Zealand Law Society, facilitating uh, the Barristers Module at the Stepping Up Program. Uh, she's part of the faculty at the National Litigation Skills and has been involved in special projects with the New Zealand Law Society, including Cultural Change Task Force and an AVL pro, uh, pilot project. Uh, she's a member of the NZBA, that's the Bar Association's Criminal Law Committee. Emma is also a non-executive director of the Board on Variety New Zealand Uh, the children's charity, and has volunteered exclusively in the community over a career. Emma has a particular passion for forensic science and penal reform. As part of her practice, Emma and her colleague Susan Gray wanted to make a contribution to society in a meaningful way, so they created the Good Lawyer platform. Emma's first project was the Good Book Project, a project centred around filling prisons with books, Due to the shortage of books, especially in minority languages and prisons, Emma developed a practice management app with Action Step um, uh, Pro Bono One, where criminal barristers can have the same access to client and document management as the Crown and the Public Defence Service currently enjoy. Uh, Emma, welcome. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks, good. Chris. Well, um, you know, it's the 18th of January. Did you manage to get a, a break over the Christmas? Yes, um, today's actually my first day back right. after a long break, so it's been great. All right, how do you feel about that? Being back? Being back in <laughs> 2022. Oh, I've just opened, I don't know, 40 pieces of mail and cleared 200 emails, so no, I'm feeling good. <laughs> it's a great thing about legal practice is you go on holiday and it just keeps backing up, waiting for you to return. For sure, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, well, I wanted to talk to you about criminal law. Why Why criminal law for you? What was the, what was the interest? Um, well, I did my undergrad, as you've said, and you're kind opening, um, both in psychology and in law. And uh, when I actually got to the end of my undergrad degrees, I was really unsure about what to do, uh, whether to become a clinical uh, forensic psychologist uh, or whether to become a lawyer. And I actually did a book called What Colour uh, Is Your Parachute, which is a sort of crazy American career book. Yeah. Um, but it was brilliant for me. And I basically worked out that I wanted to help people um, either certainly in the criminal um, or the court uh, arena, and it was either as a forensic psychologist or as a criminal lawyer. Um, 
ultimately to do forensic um, psychology. It was another, I think, four or five years. It was very difficult to get into those programs as a um, white female uh, because there was obviously lots of um, white females who wanted to be psychologists. Um, and ultimately, I decided to, to really focus in on criminal law and I also did forensic science as part of my master's. You, you must have uh, picked up some knowledge and skills studying psychology that you're able to apply as a criminal defence lawyer, surely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think it helps. Um, mm. A lot of what we do is dealing with people um, in probably the worst situations that they'll ever face in their lives uh, when they're facing serious criminal charges, particularly um, things like homicides um, when they're facing murder charges, for example. Um, but even, you know, people being uprooted from their homes, from their partners, from their children, losing their jobs, losing their houses if they're um, remanded in custody. Um, it, ultimately, it's a massive um upset, I suppose, in their lives. Um, So I think psychology, the ability to bring a bit of empathy uh, and understand the acute distress that they're under really, really helps. Will you be dealing with people who are uh, going through immense levels of stress to the point that it would possibly affect their, you know, ability to be able to make rational, calm decisions? Oh, for sure. And then you add in things like um, intellectual disability, cognitive deficits through... Um, brain injury um, or through drug use, a lot of addiction. Um, we're now dealing with fetal alcohol syndrome um, as well. So we've got a lot of crossover with psychology or cognitive issues um, and law, particularly criminal law. Well, even alcohol itself, um, I mean, you know, the best decisions are never made under the influence of alcohol, are they? <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. No, <laughs> no. All right. Well, look, um, Tell me about your time as a as a prosecutor. Um, what did you learn? Oh, look, um, in my time as a prosecutor, I think, was in, I was incredibly fortunate to learn off some of the best lawyers in the country. Um, I got to work with a number of different partners when I was at Meredith Connell who definitely taught me my craft, taught me a lot um, about how to prosecute. And, of course, that's incredibly beneficial as a defence lawyer because... Uh, we can effectively, well, we, we can hold the Crown to task. We know what they can do, what they should be doing. Um, we can hold them to account. Uh, but also, of course, there's a benefit of having learned how to build a case. You can learn how to perhaps undo it, uh, which is part of the job as a, as a defence lawyer. Well, that must have given you a, a great uh, introduction into practice uh, and uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about that introduction for criminal defence lawyers is that once upon a time, I mean, may, maybe it, maybe we're still in this age, um, my perception is, is that we aren't, is that a graduate could roll out of law school uh, back in the day, and I'm, I'm talking 25 years ago, and become qualified as a duty solicitor and uh, qualify as a legal aid provider and pretty much set up shop, put their shingle out, Maybe operate out of the uh, out of the back of a, a, a car and and actually make a career out of it and a living, but my my sense is those days are gone. Uh, have you got any views on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I believe to set up as a barrister now, um, and if I'm wrong, <laughs> mm. I'll add that proviso in. Um, I think you have to have worked for someone for I think around three years. So I think literally the law society regulations now prevent people going out immediately as barristers. Um, I think, I mean, I, I always have a graduate um, 
like a junior and then I normally, now, now I'm taking on a law clerk as well. So I, I take graduates who have a particular passion for criminal law and certainly in our chambers there's a number of um, barristers who have junior criminal lawyers or law clerks who are just grads without practising certificates. Um, but they're, of course they're hard spots to get for sure um, and you certainly can't just go out and set up on your own. Um, the alternative, of course, is the Crown, and the Crown has always been um, difficult to get employment in. Um, they, of course, have the benefit of being able to take people with very high grades um, and have the, the pick, effectively, of the grads. So, yeah, look, I do think criminal law is really niche. I think it's hard when you're at uni because you recognise that there's so few roles potentially out there. Um, and it is, you've really got to pick up the phone and, and ring around or work out who you want to work for. I mean, one of the things I always tell young grads is um, don't pick a firm um, to learn from. Pick a person, pick the barrister who you respect. Go and watch them in court if you like what you see. Approach them for a job because they're the ones who are actually going to teach you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I think it's almost uh, to the point where you, it's not really arguable that there's not a lot of money to be made as a criminal defence lawyer. Um, there's you, you don't hear about criminal defence lawyers, uh, you know, banking a million dollars a year or anything like that. In fact, it's it's far from that. Um, so the pathway for young lawyers who who want to get into criminal law, do you think the pathway is easier now than it was when you started out, or is it becoming more difficult? I think it's probably similar. Um, in terms of the number of roles that are available. I think it's still equally challenging to get roles at the Crown. I think it's still equally difficult to get roles as a junior lawyer. Um, I would say that people who do criminal law tend to do it vocationally, so it's not a job that you go in to to make a lot of money and work leisurely hours. Um, <laughs> for sure, we, I think we're there because we want to make a difference, we want to help, um, and we do work really long hours, particularly when you're in trial. You just do what you've, you you can't bring your B game. It's somebody's life um, who's li that's literally in your hands. So there's just no room for you to to be anything other than at your very best. I've also heard a suggestion. I'm interested in your comments on this. Whether um, this is your perception that because of the changes to legal aid uh, in the in the late 90s and into the beginning of uh, the, the the century. Uh, that really uh, there's possibly going to be a, a situation where we don't ha have uh, a, a large senior bar because lawyers just aren't staying in criminal law. They're, they're getting out of criminal law if they can, um, putting aside the fact that a lot of lawyers just don't go to criminal law at all. Um, what, what's your views on that? Yeah, I mean, we <clears throat> we can see from the UK, can't we, the real difficulties they're having with their, their legal aid system um, and it's effectively in a state of collapse. Um, there's certainly a risk in New Zealand of that. Um, you'll be aware, of course, of the New Zealand Law Society um, survey and all the, the results which were done through, I think, Colmar Brunton, which were released late last year, um, which indicated some real difficulties with legal aid. Um, I am worried about succession or the ability for us to train young lawyers um, and bring them up through the legal aid ranks. One of the key um, improvements that I'd like to see is the funding, even on a nominal basis, of junior lawyers to be able to, to effectively second or junior in jury trials just to get experience with lots of different senior barristers that will then grow their expertise and will allow them to move up through the ranks and help us. 
Um, I mean, my ideal year is about six jury trials a year. Some of them are big. They might be a month long, but that's my ideal workload. I think in 2022, I've got about 15 scheduled, um, and I'm already booked out to June 2023. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a big workload. It is, and I have juniors who are fantastic, um, and I could not do my work without them. Um, But I take them to junior with me at my cost, and that's fine, but you... It's not available, I don't think, to all barristers. Yeah. Well, look, before we move on to your move to the the Public Defence Service, I thought I'd ask you a question because you mentioned about legal aid in in the UK. Now, the UK has a slightly different prosecution model to what we have in New Zealand. So here in New Zealand, we've got uh, a number of firms that hold a Crown Warrant and, you know, they're the Crown Solicitor's Offices and... So they end up getting the instructions from the the police or other government agencies to prosecute. But in the United Kingdom, they have a director of public prosecutions. And and with that office, which is is a government office um, staffed by government employees, um, rather than lawyers like we have here in New Zealand who are running law firms and and, uh, which some might say are businesses, because the partners want a profit, um, that the Director of Public Prosecutions in the UK uh, will farm out a lot of prosecutions, for example, to the independent bar. So you can end up having these these QCs that'll come in and do the more serious trial, criminal trial work, and, and bring in juniors from their chambers, etc. We don't seem to have that model here. Do you, do you think there might be some advantage um, now while... You know, to look at whether there might be a better model than this, the, the Crown Warrant model that we have? Um, I, I think it's always good to review um, the systems that are currently in place to see if there's a better option. Um, what I would say is I, I really think there's value in the way that they do it in the UK in terms of barristers both prosecuting and defending. I think it's really good for um, all barristers actually to be able to see things from both perspectives and it um, eliminates the, or minimises the ability for barristers to become blinkered in terms of one way of, of viewing a case. So I think there's real value in that in that regard. Um, I can say that certainly in Auckland they do brief out to barristers, particularly um, the Monaco Crown. Um, they brief out quite a lot of their work to um, defence lawyers to prosecute, and that does go on a bit around the country, but it's certainly not their base model. Um, I, I couldn't imagine it would be a high percentage no, I don't imagine it's particularly um, financially viable if once it gets over a particular threshold, but they yeah. do it obviously with any matters where there's a conflict of interest um, and also where I guess there's, there's workload issues. Yeah, look, your point I think is really well made about barristers being able to spend a bit of time on uh, the, the, the two different council table. Mm. Um, otherwise, as a as a prosecutor, you get very good at leading evidence. As a defence lawyer, you get very good at cross-examining. Um, and that's, that skill set uh, can become pigeonholed. Um, certainly, modern advocacy training would suggest you actually need to be able to be on both sides of that equation. Oh, for sure. And I mean, while we do both as defence lawyers or Crown, obviously there's far more focus on examination in chief when you're at the Crown and far more focus on cross-examination when you defence. So you definitely uh, hone your skills um, in that way, depending on what side you're on. So, I mean, I, I'd love to see that, I guess, is be considered as a model in New Zealand um, in terms of everybody doing a, a bit of both. I think it would strengthen 
the criminal justice system overall. Yeah, I mean, we do have a new Legal Services Act. Um, it's the 2011 that's that's come in, it's replaced our 2000 Act. Uh, it seems to be there uh, an attempt to reform uh, legal services, uh, give uh, a little bit more efficiency and streamline. I'm not sure if it's really going to achieve its objectives the way it pans out. Uh, but one of the thing, one of the other changes, uh, other than the reforms to legal aid that took place, was the introduction of a public defence service. Now, what what year was that? Was <laughs> I, don't, I don't know actually. It's I about know ten years ago, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it was the, the pilot program I think was set up in Monaco um, yeah. under Lynn Hughes, um, and I think she, she's certainly been there over ten years, or was there over ten years? She left last year. Yeah. Okay. So for you know, so for listeners, so that they understand, um, up until about ten years ago, um, if you needed someone to defend you, uh, you would you would go to a lawyer, and if they were authorised to uh, or approved to do criminal defence work, uh, you could pretty much have whatever lawyer you wanted. I mean, then there were changes to put it on rotation and various other things. Uh, and then uh, a decision was made to set up a, 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 a an agency called the Public Defence Service. It was piloted in Manukau, and, and then it's been rolled out pretty much to most of the, the countries, the main centres, hasn't it? I think so. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Okay, and you were you were there at the PDS for how long? Um, it was about two years. Right. Yeah. Okay, how was that experience for you? Great. Yeah? Yeah. No, so um, the thing about defence work is it's, it's a lot harder than prosecuting, in my experience, uh, a lot harder. So there's a lot of skills you've got to learn around taking written instructions, around the process from a defendant's perspective, around explaining to them all of their options. Uh, when you're the Crown, um, we only did jury trial work for a start, um, so I'd never done any judge alone work. Um, I've never done any low-level crime. So I had to learn a lot. The, the learning curve was astronomical, um, and the PDS was definitely a fantastic place to learn. Um, I was working with other senior lawyers. I came in, of course, as a senior lawyer running a team, but it allowed me to learn off other seniors in the office. Um, when I first started, um, it was actually Sue Gray and I. Uh, we both left Meredith Connell. We both went to public defence service together. Uh, and we both actually applied for the same job, which was quite hilarious. Um, there was one role, and they ended up taking us both, and I ended up seconding to Monaco uh, for the first six months um, until another role came up at Auckland, and then we, we were both at Auckland together. That, that was like it could have been awkward for you. Uh, oh, so Someone would have missed out. <laughs> oh, no, it was funny because I went to the interview and I said, well, look, I know Sue Gray's applying, and of course you'll have to hire her. She was my supervising partner at Meredith Connell, oh. um, and she went into the interview and, as I understand it, said precisely the same thing. And <laughs> And so <laughs> they sort of thought it was a complete rort, which it really wasn't. I um, mean, I was yeah. quite genuine in that they really had to hire Sue. But um, in any event, we both went there together um, yeah. and we both learned a lot from there. I, I learned tons. Um, and then from there, uh, it was Sue was the real impetus for us to leave again. She said, Em, it's time to go. Right, okay. To the bar. What, did you go at the same time? You went yeah. off to the Dapita Bar? Yeah, so yeah. we actually, um, well, I think we talked about it briefly, but I was part of a team who pitched for the South Auckland Warrant. Yes. Um, and Sue Gray was part of that as well. Um, so we've always sort of travelled a bit as a team. She's fantastic. Um, and anyway, we decided after we'd been unsuccessful in that, that we would go out and set up chambers or join chambers. Um, and we went out looking for some shared space Um and then we had a chat with Julianne Kincaid, who's now QC, and the three of us had worked together at Meredith Connell for a long time. And ultimately we saw um, what's now Blackstone Chambers uh, was for lease. 
Good. Okay, I'm going to come back to Blackstone Chambers just really quickly, just before we do, just for the listeners. So Auckland as a, as a province, the Crown Warrant had, had sat with Meredith Connell for well over, was it 100 years? I think. That's a long time. That's right, around 100 years. Yeah, it sat there and, and uh, you know one partner of that firm would, would hold the warrant until they either got appointed a judge or drop dead, I guess, one or the other, and then another partner would, would pick up the, the baton and run with it. But then uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a decision made, to because Auckland had grown so much, I guess, uh, to split uh, Auckland into South Auckland and the rest of Auckland, and that needed a, a, a new Crown Warrant to be created, uh, which was, uh, and that now sits with another firm uh, that now holds that. Yeah, yes, that's yeah, right. That's how it works. Yeah. Right, tell us about Blackstone Chambers. It was for lease. Now, just maybe by way of a little bit of background, this is on 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 Wyndham Street, isn't it? Yeah, look, it's a neat old building. Um, and and in my days of Meredith Connell, we were worked on Shortland Street, and we yeah. walked up Wyndham Street past this neat old legal building. And again, and again, talking about things that are old, that that is a really old building. It is. I think it's the oldest legal chambers in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yep. It's a really cool space, but effectively, um, a man called Jared McCoy QC, mm. um, he bought it and he renovated it, and then it was for lease. And he, of course, really wanted a group of barristers to come in and lease it. Wow! Um, so we were we weren't looking to take on a lease at all. Um, so we contacted him and came up with an arrangement, which meant we effectively didn't have to take a lease but we could have the building, um, yeah. and we've grown it from there. Well, um, I'll come back to that again, just by way of a little bit more historical background. Look, there was a firm in there for, I think it was New Zealand's oldest firm. Yes. And then they must have just run out of steam and uh, closed up shop and, and walked out, I guess. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about why they left, um, but I know that the building was very, um, what do I say, probably precious to, to Jerry, Jerry McCoy QC, who we became very, very good friends with um, as our landlord. Is he still practising or is he retired? He actually um, passed away. He did? Yeah, and last, oh. last um, first COVID, 2021. Oh, not, no. not of COVID, right. um, of an unrelated um, health issue. But yeah, so his family now um, still own it and we, we feel very grateful um, that we are effectively custodians of the chambers. Um, and Almost a little to, bit of a legacy for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. we. I think his his kids are both lawyers. Um, both of his children, they um, practice in Hong Kong, as did Jerry. Okay, yeah. so you and Susan Gray decided to, I guess, resurrect or set up Blackstone Chambers. Now, what, what was, what were the objectives behind it? What were you seeking to achieve? Oh, look, um, no, look, we were really quite foolish. Um, I hope Susie doesn't mind me saying that. We were just looking for a place to put a desk. Right. Um, yeah. And we are originally looking in shed space type arrangements. Just We just needed a place to practice out of. Um, and then we saw Blackstone and thought, oh, look, how hard can it be to set up a chambers? Anyway, it turns out it's it's quite hard. Um, <laughs> but we, we just fumbled our way through it and, um, yeah, managed to get – a website up and get furniture and get everything, the whole place furnished, doco bins, um, PO boxes, you know. It's quite an undertaking setting up a set of chambers. Now, was it just you and Susan Gray? I mean, I know that there's other barristers there. How did did the chambers start expanding? Yeah, so there was um, Sue Gray, Julianne Kincaid QC and me. 
Right. That's it. Okay. Yeah. But but there's a few more than just that now. Yeah. No, yeah. we're absolutely heaving now. Right. Um, between uh, we're completely full, and then there's lots of juniors as well. Um, oh. Sounds like a busy little set of chambers. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's around fifteen barristers in there. And everyone's practicing in criminal law. No, uh, no, well, almost. Um, yeah, we've got one civil lawyer, um, a couple who dabble in civil, um, and then we've got a relationship property civil overlay as well. Oh, good, good. Okay. Well, um, I guess anyone who wants to deep dive deeper into that could check out your website. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, your move to the independent bar, I guess, um, uh, leaving the, uh, let's call it the convenience of being in a government agency where you've got guaranteed work and then having to go out on your own. How was that transition? Yeah, look, I, I remember having a conversation with my husband about it and he said, well, look, what's your business model? And I said, oh, everyone just said I'll, I'll have heaps of work. And he said, that, that's not a good business model. Um, and I said, well, look, everyone, and no one looks back and it's just like bungee jumping. You've just got to just got to jump and, and all, will be, all will be well. So um, it was a terrible business model on paper, but it, it's true um, when you go, because I think of the legal aid system, um, there is tons of work and to be blunt probably not enough lawyers so there is you're immediately inundated with work um, for serious crime which we call PAL 3 or PAL 4 um, which is provider approval level 3 or 4 that's crime with a maximum penalty of 14 years or more um, a defendant is able to pick their lawyer of choice so it's called preferred counsel work so that's all I do um, in the first six months I did what we call PAL 1 and 2 work which is the minor work um, and you just get that on rotation so you literally um, just get an email from legal services who say, look, there's an opposed bail application at the court. Can you be up there in half an hour and off you go? Um, but now all my work is, is preferred counsel work and that's all jury trial work pretty much. Oh, great. And now yeah. um, you, you made the comment, which I think is a very fair comment from my perspective, that uh, there's a lot of work out there and not enough lawyers to do that. Now that must put a, a huge amount of stress on the criminal defence bar to be able to try and keep pace with those that, that need help. For sure. Okay. For sure. And look, um, I noticed that you're uh, quoted in the, in the media um, where you were interviewed about this, about burnout and, and the impacts. I mean, you know, what's your perspective on this? Like what's, you know, is this a risk area that needs to be uh, addressed um, or can we just leave it up to the criminal defence uh, bar to just keep, you know, business as usual and steady as it goes? Yeah, look, there's, there's a real uh, tension, I think, between the work that needs to be done in order to ensure that people have access to justice, particularly in the criminal justice arena, and the need to look after the wellbeing of the profession. Um, it's a huge tension. It's very difficult to reconcile. Um, to be fair, we raised the issue of wellbeing um, last year. Um, and the heads of bench have been very receptive to it. Um, they arranged meetings at every single court in the country um, with senior members of the bar to talk about um, the challenges that we face, the pressure points in any way that they can relieve them. Um, I know we'll get to the pandemic perhaps later, but obviously this is exacerbated with the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but the example I gave before that my preferred number of jury trials in a year is six, and this year I have 15 scheduled, is, is a perfect example of that. I have to work more efficiently in order to be able to still bring my A game for 15 jury trials, and that basically means having fantastic juniors who are prepared to work very hard. 
Um, um, well, can, can I ask you some questions? And, and if you don't feel comfortable answering them, of course, just just don't. But uh, it seems to me when you're working at that level, um, you're going to need a bit more support than just a few juniors. I mean, do you have um, do you have people who you can talk to to you know like just to talk about the stress you're under, or have you got a support network like that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I think one thing about criminal law is that we're pretty open and honest about our pressures. Um, certainly in our chambers, if people are having a bad day, if they're not sleeping, if they need someone to step in and help them, if they're under too much pressure um, to, to take some of their work, we all look after each other. So there's certainly an incredible collegiality um, within the criminal bar, in my view. Um, I do, I think you, I mean, you know, I have to run my whole life very efficiently in order to work that hard. So I outsource, I have, you know, cleaner, I have a nanny because I've got kids, I have a gardener, (laughs) you know, we outsource all the extra stuff as well. Um, but it's incredibly hard and I, I always feel that pressure to say yes as much as I can to clients. I operate very purely on a first cab off the rank rule. So if a client comes to me, whether it's legal aid or private, it's within my area of expertise and I have capacity, I will say yes. But I still would turn away probably between 10 and 20 briefs a week. Yeah. Um, and I hate to do that, but if I've got, if I'm double booked, I, I simply can't do the work. Um, you sound like you're a people pleaser, having that difficulty saying no to someone. Oh, look, I do say no. Um, I just feel like because our work is vocational, or certainly is for me, um, you realise that someone's under immense pressure and that you know know that you're not the first or the last lawyer they're going to ring who's going to say no to them when they're they're searching for someone to advocate for them and their liberty is at risk. I'm going to come back to wellbeing and wellness because it's an area that I'm really interested in. But just before I do, just the point you've just made is is one I've been thinking about for years. uh, it sounds to me you have the same experience that I do. I have people ring up because I'm on a legal aid list, okay? And they'll say, Chris, you're, the, you're like the 14th or the 24th person that I've rung, lawyer, and they've all said I don't have capacity. And, uh, you know, it really distresses me when I hear that and I'm absolutely scrambling around to try and find a lawyer for them mm. who can help them. And then I find I've just spent two hours running around trying to find someone um, and it just seems to me that the system of, of matching uh, clients to lawyers is just completely inefficient and, and, and if not totally broken. Um, uh, an idea that I had, uh, look, a little bit left field is, is almost like a, a, a Tinder app <laughs> for, for clients and lawyers, where you know you could efficiently see, you know, who's got experience and interests in what areas, and who's got capacity to to take it on. Now, I do know that the community law have, have recently set up something similar. Um, I'm not sure how it's going. In fact, I'd, I'd love to get um, the the head of community law on board to tell us all about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but is, is that a, a, an area of of actually trying to match clients? With lawyers, an, an area where you know some improvements could be made in people's lives, so that they don't end up being on the phone in a prison for three days trying to find a lawyer to help them. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think with civil um, or non-criminal, I think that would be really helpful because I think there's a lot of I, I don't know anything about civil law, but I believe there's a lot of different areas and specialties, and that matching I think would be really important. I think with criminal, 
all they need is a criminal, they need a criminal barrister to help them or a criminal lawyer. Um, and so I, I don't think, I think the issue is more that particularly with serious crime, so talking maximum penalties of 14 years or more, there's only a couple of hundred senior legal aid providers, as I understand it, in New Zealand. Yeah, across the country. And so as there is more and more serious crime, um, which is being prosecuted, and I think, I mean, I don't know the stats, but certainly if you look at the news, you can see there's a lot of serious crime at the moment. Um, there's just not enough lawyers. So it's not so much about matching. It's To me, it's about coming back to that succession issue, about us getting lawyers who are currently PAL 2 up to PAL 3 and up to PAL 4. So to me, training and funding for juniors is, if I had to pick one thing to change in the legal aid system, that would be the one thing because then you're going to literally be growing that pool of senior lawyers. And, of course, they can always do the more junior work. Well, the, the more the, the ridiculousness of the system with promoting uh, junior defence lawyers through to that PAL 3 and 4 is that for them to be able to be uh, promoted as such, they've got to have done so many trials. Correct. But it's almost the, the cart before the horse or the chicken before the egg because they kind of need that a, a appointment um, so that they can actually start getting the instructions to get that level of experience. Um, that it, 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 Again, it seems to me that the career pathway for criminal defence lawyers um, has a bit of a break in it um, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly some hurdles. Um, I undertake quite a bit of supervision work, which means, a, a, say, a PAL2 lawyer, a more junior or an intermediate lawyer, will come to me and say, my client's been charged with a PAL3 or a PAL4 offence. Can you take the brief? And I'll work on it with you. Mm. Um, and so I'll agree to do that. All same for Court of Appeal work. Um, someone will come to me and they say, I'm not classified to do this work. I'd love to do the work under your supervision. What it means, though, is I have to do all the admin and I have to be prepared to be available, of course, um, and actively supervise all of their work. Even while you're doing 15 jury trials. While you're doing, yeah, while you're carrying a client load of 50 or 60 clients. That's right. So you've got all your own clients and then you're supervising. I, I do do quite a bit of that work, particularly for intermediates and chambers, um, and I'm more than happy to do it. But again, what what it's, what it's the system is dependent on is the goodwill of senior barristers who are prepared to give their time for free. Um who are already overworked and to a degree underpaid. I mean, maybe there's an opportunity there for PDS, you know, the Public Defence Service, where they allocate a bit of resource for doing supervision of more junior lawyers at the independent bar so that they can, you can start moving those lawyers through the ranks a bit, a bit more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, I think um, certainly when I first left um, PDS, they were quite prepared to offer free juniors, if you like, so offer their PAL2 lawyers to come out and junior for free um, with senior lawyers, but of course they've got their own workloads to carry yeah. um, and for them to take a week uh, out of their schedule and also prep time in order for the, the, the supervision to be meaningful, they have to spend time preparing with you. Uh, it, it's not sustainable, I don't think, as a as an ongoing model. It certainly can happen from time to time, but it's very dependent on the workload of the PDS um, as well as obviously the seniors' workload and, and what capacity they have to actually take on that sort of work. As I'm in chambers, of course, I will always prioritise the juniors and intermediates within my chambers and give them junior the opportunities. opportunities. Yeah, which, which, make, which makes sense. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's uh, – we, 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 we can't avoid, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> talking about the pandemic and the effect 
on uh, criminal law or you know the justice system operating. Sure. Um, now you know, we we've all experienced the just jury trials being cancelled. Um, we've got you know uh, defendants who are in remand could very well be not guilty, even possibly innocent, um, but just can't get on for their trial because the court system's just shut down. Um, where do you see the, the major implications in uh, ensuring that there is a fair justice system for those charged with offences? Yeah, look, um, during the pandemic, I think, again, we're we're all in a, a pretty impossible situation. Um, of course, people who are on remand need to get priority for their cases, their jury trials to go ahead, but equally we need jurors. Um, and jurors aren't coming to court, understandably, in the middle of a pandemic um, because there's risk. So I've been part of, um, all through the various organisations that I'm involved in, um, we've been assisting with, I guess, advice or our views on how it could operate. And it was only late last year that we came out with a uh, a full protocol, or the heads of bench came out with a full protocol, and they consulted very widely with the profession on how everything would run. It's not limited to jury trials, but obviously that's my key area of focus. And the idea is that as of 1st of February this year, under red light, orange light, or green light, jury trials will go ahead. Um, that, of course, didn't anticipate uh, Omicron, so we're not sure what will happen um, when that is in the, in the community, because I think personally that we're going to probably hit real difficulties with getting jurors into the courtroom. Um, we can't, of course, limit access to a courtroom to those who are vaccinated in terms of defendants. And in terms of witnesses, we can look at audio-visual link um, options in terms of them giving evidence from home. Um, but it does require a lot of preparation because if you wish to put or show exhibits to a witness, um, we don't currently have, we're not using Microsoft Teams, we don't currently have the ability to, to screen share with any ease. Um, and of course, we don't want to give people documents in advance of them being cross-examined. So we, we, there, are, there are just some logistical hurdles. It's not impossible, but it's hard. What I can say is that last year, we was it 2020, whenever the first year was that we had had the lockdowns? We did, yeah. So we went into lockdown in March 2020. Okay, so yeah. in 2020, I think we had nearly six months without jury trials. Mm. Despite that, in the year 2020, we did more jury trials in New Zealand than any year prior. Mm. So I think that while we, of course, must focus on the liberty of a defendant, they must also get a fair trial. And so there's always that tension. And as to whether balance falls, it really depends on the particular situation at the time. Like I feel like now um, we're in orange light in the traffic light system. Um, our numbers are quite low. Omicron, as far as we know, isn't in the community. But it's going to be here. It is. And the government signalled that as soon as it does, we're going into red. Um, and the yep. experts are saying actually we need to go back to a full alert system. Exactly. So we're going to need to have a, f a full rework of, of what's going to happen. And as I said, it's, you know, if, if, if jurors won't turn up um, when they're summonsed or if witnesses are afraid to come um, to court or they're unwell, I mean, that's the other thing. We could start a jury trial all well and good, but how far are we going to get through before someone's symptomatic? Someone has to have a test and go into isolation and we'd all be close contact. So mm. it is difficult to know whether it's worth pushing on 
um, or whether we should just pause for a bit longer and remember how well we did in 2020. So I think that it feels um, for individual defendants, of course we can reapply for bail, that would be a change in circumstances, the fact that their trial couldn't proceed. Um, because of COVID, we could then reapply for, for bail perhaps. So there's certainly things that we, we look at, um, but it, it's it's incredibly tricky um, and I don't envy the heads, heads of bench who are going to have to make these um, solutions. Just, just because it's tricky or mm. difficult doesn't mean that we can't try and come up with some solutions. Now, I was really fortunate to have uh, Judge David Harvey on the podcast last year. Great. And uh, you'd probably be aware that one of uh, Judge Harvey's areas of interest is technology as a as a solution provider to problems. Certainly. Uh, we do have legislation that allows, that's the court's uh, Remote Participation Act for, you mentioned, you know, witnesses on AVL, audiovisual link, um, and the, 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 the court, our justice system, our courts have uh, a bit of experience now with um, uh, remote meeting uh, holding trials by remote meeting. Uh, just finished in the federal court in Victoria, being involved in a six-week trial, uh, where the only person in the courtroom was the judge, uh, and at times the judge uh, appeared in his chambers. Uh, I mean, probably the most famous case is uh, the state of Washington prosecuting um, Donald Trump, uh, President Trump. Now, again, that was broadcast to, to, to tens of millions of people all logged in. Um, it was a bench there of three judges. They were the only people in the courtroom and they were able to run that all through. So the technology's there. Um, what I'd also probably say is, you know, our hospital system has to cope with COVID-infected patients that turn up very distressed and you'll get an ICU team of up to 12 people in a very close uh, proximity to them in a theatre uh, to uh, you know use a, a ventilator to ventilate them, uh, and they seem to be able to manage doing that without anyone getting infected. Um, you know maybe the answer is we've got to look at a, a specific building, specific jury courtrooms. Okay, now come at money. They can be negatively pressurised. Each juror can have a uh, an allocated space where the risk minimisation of cross infections minimised. And the use of more audiovisual, each juror has a screen in front of them so they can see at least documentary exhibits or photographic exhibits. It's a bit more difficult when you want to produce the murder weapon and it's a bloody knife uh, in a plastic bag. But look, you know, just spray the stuff with disinfectant if you if you if you need to. Uh, the bag that is. Um, surely there's solutions to this rather than just saying to defendants, you can just sit in remand for another. I don't know, three months, six months, or maybe a few years while this pandemic rolls its way through. Um, I mean, does any of this strike in accord with you as a defence lawyer? Um, yes, um, but of course none of them are quick solutions. Um, I totally But, but we're, we're, we're two years into this pandemic and no one's suggesting it's going to be over next week. No. And, and And it is just money. At the end of the day, people's liberties at stake. Mm. Um, we're a resource-rich nation. Why don't we just spend a bit of money and and create a solution? Um, and, and look, it's quite possible this won't be the last pandemic that New Zealand has, funnily enough. So maybe now's the time to really look at having a solution that gets these trials underway and rolling rather than just going, oh, it just sounds a little bit difficult and we should just um, uh, keep people locked up. 
Yeah, I, look, I, I mean, I don't disagree that that would be a great solution. I think the trials uh, internationally that have gone ahead have all been judge-alone trials, not jury trials. I'm happy to be corrected if I'm wrong. I think that juries provide or present additional um, challenges. You know, we can't really have jurors at home. Um, we don't currently have the facilities for jurors to have separate spaces. Um, yeah, but we don't I mean, have an ICU nurse sitting at home um, either. You know, you'll have four of them in, a, in an operating theatre. You'll have in a, a couple of anaesthetists, uh, potentially some registrars uh, sure. and other people, and they're all mulling around a, a, a badly infected COVID patient. Mm. Um so they know that the virus is there and they still are able to get on and, and do what's necessary to help that person. Um, wh why should we be not look at something similar um, so that, you know, we set up a, a courtroom where, where we're able to provide people with PPE and we're able to minimise um, direct contact and all of those things. That, that must be be something that's capable of doing. It just sounds to me it's just going to cost money, but but so what? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there are additional... Um, I mean, one of the issues, for example, that we've looked at with witnesses, um, which I'm sure you'll appreciate, is that we naturally um, read people's entire faces. And so everyone having to keep their masks on in a courtroom um, really limits the ability to read people's faces, if you like. So one of the solutions that we suggested and has been adopted is that there's these clear masks that witnesses wear so you can at least see their facial expression and, and get a bit more of a sense of of them when they give their evidence. Um, I mean, I'd personally quite like the judges to wear them so I can read the judge and yeah. see whether I ought to stop or whether I ought to keep arguing at various points in a jury trial. Um, and again, the jurors, I normally take a look at the jurors and see, are they with me? Are they interested? Do they look bored? And it's much easier to do that when you can see an entire person's oh, face. I, I so totally that's one example. I, um, I, I totally agree. But, I mean, yeah. you, you'll have literally spent thousands of hours talking to clients uh, uh, between three inches of perspex. Um, and uh, and that, so so that, that can be done. You can set up effectively a witness box and you'd set two of them up. So you'd have one for a witness giving evidence and the other one would be being deep cleaned for the next witness to, to come in and you'd swap them around so that you, you'd have a witness in a perspex box you can see and hear exactly what they're doing and no difference whatsoever, and you know that the next witness is going into an environment that's completely sterile. Yeah, I, I, I know, look, I'm not an epidemiologist by any um, stretch of the imagination, but I understand ventilation's key and the perspex is insufficient, certainly from the work that yeah, we've done. Yeah, so I don't know the exact yeah. word. It's, it starts with H. It's something like a, um, a Hessian filter. Oh. Um, and so this is what they, they use in some of these um, theatres, hospitals, uh, where the air is circulated through and there are no particles at all. It is 100% safe. So you're getting clear, clean, COVID-free air and, and away you go. I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd love it if they did a complete ventilation system in the court. One thing I would say is like Auckland District Court, prior to um, this most recent pandemic or the most recent lockdown, um, was running eight jury trial courts every week. So um, there's no more space 
um, they would have to move a, move buildings or they would have to operate um, less jury trial courts in order to allocate additional space, if you like. I totally think your solutions are fantastic, but I think you have to add an air of reality, which is that it's not going to happen in the next eight weeks. Um, well, we, it's, it's not going to happen in the next eight weeks. No. Um, but the point's this, is that unless someone does something, it's never going to happen at all. Mm. couple of things. Um I'm a little bit older than you, so you may not have uh, been in the genre that, that there was a great American TV series called Night Court. And, and I do know that in Manukau they are operating um, uh, some night. And um, But, you know, in terms of creating a jury space, w- why couldn't we have a system where we are running um, a courtroom that's specially set up? Uh, maybe not 24-7, but rather than that, that classic 10 o'clock in the morning till... 4.30 in the afternoon, and then it's just not used at all. Um, and maybe run two jury trials uh, at the same, well, not at the same time, but on, on on a shift basis, just so that we can get the workload through. Uh, next point, well, you know, with all this consultation that we're having with the bench and the profession about some solutions, are we really got you know, the right, all the right people that we need in the room talking about this? Because you mentioned not being a, an epidemiologist. Do we need to get an epidemiologist involved to actually say, hey, this is what the virus is, this is how it's transmitted, and maybe we look at designing courtrooms so that it, it minimises that impact? Are we talking to the right people, do you think? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know. I'm obviously one part of one um, group that is consulted, but I know that Heads of Bench certainly consult with lots of people. I'm not sure whether it extends to health professionals um, or not. I simply don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I mean, well, certainly if they are, they're not really passing that information on to the to the profession to say, hey, you know, we've been, we, you know from a health and safety point of view, mm. uh, to make sure people are safe, rather than just saying, look, we'll just shut down. Um, you know, we are consulting to see how we can make this, this move onwards so that, that people are uh, safe. Anyway, just thoughts, but um, I think uh, just saying it's too hard and tricky, so let's just not do it, is is probably not the right approach if we're going to have a, a system of justice that ensures that those that are charged with you know crimes that are serious enough to have them sitting in remand uh, can be brought swiftly before the courts, because the old cliche applies, and that is justice delayed is justice denied. Certainly. I mean, you'll have come across a situation where the defendant is found not guilty, and even if they had been found guilty, they would have been served less time than they spent in remand. Um, sure. So they may as well have just pleaded guilty on day one, and uh, they would have been out quicker than they were uh, sitting in remand. We can't have that. That's not a fair justice system. No, and I think, I mean, there's, you know, room murmurs of, of stays, of you know, applications for stays of proceeding due to delay, um, and that's, as I said, there's murmurs of that happening already. Um, one thing I would say, I think, is that to be fair to the policies that are being developed, they are very reactive and they are only thinking about the immediate solutions in order to just keep the courts turning over. And I have been working right through from, I was in the middle of a jury trial um, on the 18th of August when we went into lockdown and that trial was aborted. We literally had to pack all of our gear up and leave it in a side office um, and come back and get it about about six or eight weeks later, and since then I've been doing all of my court by video link. So there have been massive efforts made to to keep justice turning as best it can be. So I think your long-term solutions, I think, would be fantastic for them to look at that, but I do think at the moment it's been sort of just about keeping our heads above water, 
doing what we can um, to keep it moving a little bit. But I, I mean, I do agree long term, we need to sort it. Yeah, and and I and look, I don't want to be rabbiting on about this because it sounds like I'm being a bit obsessed. But <laughs> um, I suspect a lot of the policymakers, and and with all respect to them, because I'm sure they mean well. Mm haven't spent a lot of time sitting behind bars in a remand prison to know what you'd that... Ex- yeah, you'd hope <laughs> not. Yeah, but to know what that experience is like. Um, sure. And if they did, they might make um, actually a, uh, a more fierce solution, more of a priority. Anyway, let's talk about things that are being done and are going to be done that are quite positive. I want to talk about the Good Lawyer Project, okay? Tell us about the Good Lawyer Project. What is it? Yeah, so when Sue um, Sue Gray and I went out into chambers, we decided that apart from core practice that we'd like to do something um, philanthropic, I suppose, or just something small, particularly to help prisoners um, who are in remand or in custody, particularly... um, awaiting trial. So we looked at, but we also do um, sentence prisoners as well. We help them out with the books. So we looked at two particular projects initially. One's the Good Book Project, which you've talked about, and that was really just about trying to get um, books into prisons, and we supply them mostly around the Auckland area, but I have sent a few um, truckloads down to Wellington uh, for sure. And the other one is um, Shirt on Your Back, which is about getting shirts into the prisons for people who are facing um, particularly trials. So when they're, when they're f- uh, facing the public, you know, 12 jurors um, and witnesses and things, that they can be judged based on the evidence and not on their appearance. So we, um, we also have a lot of shirts in chambers, but we also deliver them uh, to Mount Eden Remand Prison, which is the main remand prison for people awaiting trial. We deliver hundreds, thousands of them um, through to the prison, and then they are available. They're laundered at the prison. They're made available to any defendant who's facing a trial. Okay. Well, well, look, I mean, that's amazing. Okay. So how could people who might be listening to the podcast, how could they get involved in terms of helping, you know, you've got the the, the books, you've got the shirts, or, you know, what, what could they do? Well, look, I mean, they're always welcome to drop anything, any donations off to Blackstone Chambers. Uh, with books, we, you know, they have to be quite current. They have to be new-ish. Um, what about in different languages? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So one of the key issues, of course, is that people who are on remand who don't speak English have massive um, isolation. And so being able to read books in their own language, at least, is, is a small way that we can help them. So if you've got any books in any different languages, yeah, we, we absolutely um, love them. Now, you, you've probably got one. Um, I've got one. Do you have a Kindle? No. You don't? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm, one, a, I'm a hard copy book girl. I've got to say, it's one of the best inventions ever. It's oh. just in, in terms of, it, I mean, I just, while you were talking, I was thinking, look, maybe another thing people could do is donate books, you know, via Kindle if prisoners were given Kindles. Um, I think that requires the internet, doesn't it? It does require the internet, but the, the Kindle's pretty limited in what you can do on it. Um, you can download books and that's about it. You yeah. can't upload anything. But anyway, just a, just a thought. Now, in terms of the shirts, they, people can send shirts through? Yeah, totally. And we yeah. Get, there's quite a few of the big firms, actually, which have um, gotten on board and they do um, sort of a whip around once or twice a year right. and get all the shirts, particularly large sizes. Yeah. Um, they're harder to get. Um, you know, X, XL up is, is fantastic. So... Um, obviously I could think of a few partners of the firms <laughs> that would fit into that category. They'll oh, remain nameless. Of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, so look, any, any shirts um, 
obviously are always welcome. At the moment, we only do them for men. Yeah. Um, the women's prison presents, um, you know, we just haven't quite got that relationship um, sorted. Well, I mean, that would be a good thing to, to link into it. But of course, there's only ever, only so many hours in every day for you and Sue, and you're doing 15 jury trials. Um, but, but if there was anyone, you know, listening, uh, wanted to um, perhaps help out, you know, with that, maybe maybe they could contact you. Look, yeah. I, I'd actually say no to that, Chris, because right. we've had loads of people all over the country who yeah. want to come on board. Yeah. But as you say, we don't have time to run a formal charity, so yeah. we just do it in our own small way. But yeah. that said, I'd totally encourage people to do it themselves. So mm. if they're around the country and there's a prison local to them, just contact the local librarian and ask them what books they're looking for. Yeah. They always have a list of, of books which are permitted and those which they're not looking at at the moment. Um, they go through phases. And again, with the shirts, they'd need to obviously contact them themselves. But we've got like no monopoly on this at all. And we just encourage anyone to help um, the prisoners in any way that they can. It, it sounds to me that the good lawyer is doing um, uh, complementary work to the, the Howard League. Um, have you got any involvement in the Howard League? No, I mean, I, I don't. I know that they, I think they get newspapers into prisons um, and maybe magazines. So yeah, I, but and I think they may do. Um, I think they help out with um, organising literacy, yeah, helping I was say help, that. helping prisoners learn how to read, um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation. You know, right. That yeah. Type so of thing. look, anyone doing book clubs? They book do book club. clubs. They do a book club. There yeah. You go. No, which is which is good. Now, um, I never had the privilege of meeting um, Peter Williams QC before he passed away. Did you Did you meet him at all? He was involved heavily in the Howard League. Yeah, no, I, I know of him, but I've never seen him in action, but obviously his reputation um, precedes him. Okay, now I wanted to talk to you about um, uh, your plans for the future, but it sounds like you've got 15 jury trials <laughs> coming up that you're going to have to start prepping for. Like, but but I will ask you, you know, we, we, you're at a stage at your career now where, um, where, where do you want to go with your career? What are you looking at hoping to achieve? Do you have any, any career objectives or goals? Um, just to keep doing what I'm doing now. I mean, I love it. I'd, I'd, I'd like to lobby a bit more, as I said, to focus on this funding for juniors to help with succession. I'd like to try and um, do what I can um, for what it's worth in terms of improving legal aid. I think legal aid's fundamental um, to the provision of justice for people who are charged with crimes um, and cannot afford a lawyer. I think the system works does actually work incredibly well. There's just not enough of us. Um, and so to me, that's the key issue. Um, lots of other people have different platforms, are concerned about the hourly rate, and I totally recognise their concerns. Um, the administration of legal aid um, presents challenges. I recognise that too. Um, but my key platform, as I said, is around the succession and, and bringing up juniors through the ranks. Oh, fantastic. Hey, um, Emma, this has just been such a fascinating session. Um, I've learned so much, and I, I really thank you for coming on board. It's been amazing and awesome. Uh, Emma Priest, uh, the good lawyer, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N dot C-O dot N-Z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.